Welcome to the Readerly Report. Your hosts are Gail Weiswasser and Nicole Bonilla. We hope you will enjoy our candid book conversations, recommendations, and observations on the reading life. Thanks so much for joining us. All right. So, welcome to another edition of the Readerly Report. Today, Gail and I are welcoming Anne Bogle from The Modern Mrs. Darcy to the show. And so, Gail, um, we're going to talk about, we have our regular format, so we're going to get into what we've been reading. Um, Gail and I will have some backlist books coming up, and then we'll get to interrogate Anne about her reading life. So we're super excited about today's show. All right. So, Anne, welcome to the Readerly Report. Thank you for having me. Oh, we're so thrilled. Um, for those people, the rare person who may not have heard of Anne before, Anne is the creator of the very popular blog, Modern Mrs. Darcy and host of the podcasts, What Should I Read Next? and One Great Book. Her popular book lists and reading guides have established Anne as a tastemaker among readers, authors, and publishers. She's also written two books herself, Reading People and I'd Rather Be Reading, and she lives in Louisville. So we're, we're thrilled to have you. Well, thank you. It's mutual. Um, all right, Nicole, should we jump quickly into what we've been reading? Okay, so I finished a book. This is a, th- I guess it's sort of a thriller. It's called The Two Lila Bennets by Liz Fenton, which is two authors, I believe two best friends. I had been hearing a lot of about this book. I think they've been reaching out to book clubs and just getting that buzz on Instagram. And I had a copy and decided to give it a read. And I really, really liked it. So the premise is sort of sliding doors, which is interesting because I feel like last week we were talking about that, the sliding doors kinds of books, because Gail, you mentioned really loving Lionel Shriver's post-birthday world. So this is about an attorney who is having an affair with someone in her office. Her marriage is stagnant. She is a defense attorney. So she has a little bit of crisis of conscience in terms of some of the clients that she is representing. And one of the cases that she's working on has really been troubling her. So at some point there is a split that occurs. Like the the novel begins, she is trapped in this room and she feels like she is going to, she doesn't feel like she's going to make it out of this concrete room. And she's taking stock of her life and things that she could have done differently in the course of becoming a defense attorney. She's burned some bridges and she's done some things in her life. So these are the things that she's considering. And she's trying to, of course, get out, get out of there and figure out who it is who's holding her captive. But on the other, I guess the alternative timeline, she is making different decisions for herself and starting to go through her life, but not under as much duress, I would say under her own agency. So the book explores these two timelines. You really have no idea which one, sometimes they seem to link up with each other. I spent a lot of time trying to figure out like which one is the real one or is she dreaming or what's going on? But it was really good. It's coming out July 9th. And so it's a perfect time to investigate whether your library has it, get on those whole lists. I really enjoyed it. Great. Uh, Okay, Anne, what are you reading now? I am two thirds of the way through a Charles Todd mystery called The Black Ascot. And of course, now I'm thinking, I, did I pronounce that like a Kentuckian and not like a real Brit? I probably did. But, mm-hmm. but it's a, 
it's an old time feeling procedural, even though it's brand new. It just came out earlier in 2019. And I'm following detective, no, not detective, police inspector, Alan Ian Rutledge, as he tries to determine if the alleged killer from a crime 11 years before is in fact alive and on the move. Bum, bum, bum. So I, I don't know. I thought, I thought about putting this down because it feels a little bit conveniently plotted. And I don't really, I, there've been a lot of raised eyebrows. Like, really? That you really want me to think that happened? But I'm just really curious to see how it plays out. And I hope to find out tonight when I finish the last 80 pages. Sometimes it gets like that with books, you know, you're sort of, you think about, oh, I'm kind of ho-hum about this, but at the same time. You know, there are many reasons to read and ways to enjoy a book. So right now I'm just looking to see, is this building towards something I don't recognize? How is the author putting this together? What are they thinking? Where do they want to go with this? So that can be interesting too, as well as the like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen next feeling, which is my first choice, but they're great second, third, and fourth options if that's not really doing it for you at the minute moment. Is this one of their standalones or is this part of the series? It can stand alone. Rutledge is a series, right? It can stand alone. But it's the upteenth something number of the Ian Rutledge books. Right. Yeah. Probably a fair amount of convenience. They probably just like, the, I think sometimes you just like the characters too. Now, have you um, skipped ahead to peek at all? That's totally something I would do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did a little bit of flipping and decided, you know, it, does, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm going to read, I'm going to read this. We'll see. I'm not averse to flipping necessarily. Yeah. It's hard sometimes. I and mean, it's just sitting right there in front of me. <laughs> Some readers right now are dying as they listen and hear you say that. <laughs> Can't help it. I'm human. Um, okay, so I'm reading Beyond the Point by Claire Gibson, which is the book that just came out about three women who bond and become friends when they start out together at West Point as basketball players. And uh, I would say I'm like maybe one third of the way through. And it's it's very um, readable and engrossing and, you know, you want to know what happens. I was noticing last night a theme, and I don't know if you guys are noticing as well, but certainly among books that are coming out now, I'm noticing a lot of books are talking about 9-11. I mean, this one, obviously, it's important because it shapes, you know, the whole military and how these women feel about the military and 9-11 happens while they're, uh, I guess, starting their sophomore year of college. But I've just noticed that so many books now have incorporated 9-11 as a major plot point. Is that something that only I'm seeing or are you guys seeing that too? No, that's a real thing. So, and in all different genres. So you're reading, I thought Claire Gibson's book was really interesting because it combines two things that don't traditionally go together in publishing. And that is women's fiction and the army. Yes. So that was interesting. And 9-11 is huge there. But I loved Julie Buxbaum's brand new Hope and Other Punchlines. It's her follow-up to, oh, what was her last one called? Tell Me Three Things is her favorite from Book Before Last. So we'll just leave that there. But she's writing about kids who grew up knowing, well, Hope it from her title was one years old on 9-11 and that's important to the book. So we'll just leave that there. And it was so interesting to read a story about kids who grew up 
with that being their reality. But then even in a more romancy kind of women's fiction, the girl you used to know, yeah. 9-11, huge, that's, major plot That's point. what I was thinking. And that, that's just in the past couple months. Yeah. Last week, Gail, I think you were going to, I was saying, don't spoil me. But I, as soon as you said that this time, I said, I knew that's what you were going to say yeah. last time. I mean, I think that we're hitting that point. So I'm sorry if I just spoiled a little bit of it. No, but I think we're hitting that point where people are at, maybe there's been enough dif- distance from it that, that we, that writers are starting to have more perspective on how it's played out and what the ramifications have been more so in the long term than I think that you could really do in, in the immediacy of the event. So that perspective is making it easier for I think that too, it's maybe we're far away enough that it's not viewed as exploitation either. Now we're seeing books address directly 9-11 using actual words and referring to the actual history. But the 10-year anniversary of Let the Great World Spin by Colin McCann is coming up. And he said that he wrote that book in response to 9-11. But it's historical fiction. And you see the Twin Towers and they are emblems in the book. But it is not, nothing collapses in his story. But emotionally, he said that's the issue he was, the issue is very much understating that. But that's what he was addressing and working through. But there's no history. There's no real people grappling with what actually happened in 2001 in his book. So when we talked to Siobhan from Book of the Month, she talked about a little life and to talking about how she didn't feel like that book was as realistic as it could have been, or she didn't take it as seriously because it was set in New York. And it didn't have the markers of nine one one. So, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, too, depending on how people are writing their characters and if people are setting things in that time period and people, it was such a big thing. I think it's, it's hard to leave out and maybe we're getting to the point where people feel like they can address it more easily, whether, where it's not seen as much as exploitation, you know, because I think books that came out like right in the aftermath, I think there was always this question of, is this exploiting people's memories? And I just feel like we're getting at a time where people are a little bit, not that they're less sensitive to it, but that it's something that has been examined. I read one book that was directly about 9-11 called The Submission. And it was about the uh, this contest to design a Ground Zero Memorial, and about how this the architect who won turned out to be a Muslim American, and then it caused all this controversy. So that one really like took nine eleven on directly, and it was written probably ten years after nine eleven. So I think maybe two thousand ten, and then I read it like two years ago, and it was interesting. It felt very dated, like it felt like um, the issues that would the book was raising uh, were felt a long time ago. And I feel like as a country, there's so many other things. Like, I think I was reading it during, you know, a lot of the um, sort of police violence and Me Too and all these other things. And it just, it it felt like it had missed its moment. And maybe it's because 9-11 was the entire book as opposed to it being a plot point. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Where I think it's, we have to see the echoes of 9-11 in what we read, uh, like in Kamala Shamsi's Home Fire, which is such a good book, an Antigone retelling that really surprised me. But her Muslim character has, is the book opens with her being afraid she's not going to make it through security because of what she looks like. And that didn't matter 20 years ago. And that is why. 
came up in asymmetry too, right? Yeah. Remember it, I didn't read that um, one. Um, there was like a whole third of the book has to do with a guy who's been detained on his way to Egypt at Heathrow because he's suspicious because he is Muslim. So that, you know, that same, that same idea. I'm so curious whenever I hear you talk about the submission, Gail, to read it, because it's just so surprising to me that it feels so dated. I would think that those issues have sort of been magnified over the years and like are coming up maybe even for more people. I have to say, I didn't like the submission that much, like as, as just as a, as a reading experience, so t- removing the, you know, the topic and everything I, it was written it was written like an article, like a news article. It didn't have, to me, it didn't have this sort of novelistic storytelling element to it that I liked. And I found it a huge slog to get through. I'd be curious to see what her next one is like. But I, w- I had wanted to read the submission for so long. And when I finally got to it, I was disappointed. All right, well, let's move on. So, Anne, we have some questions for you. So, Anne, you've done so many different you've explored reading from so many different angles. You have podcasts, you have blogs, you, you know, talk to readers, you talk to writers. I'm curious to know how have you yourself changed as a reader over the last 10 years, especially given all of these different kind of side activities that you're doing related to reading? Oh, that's a great question. Um, The short version is I think I've become a lot more confident and I've become a lot more adventurous. So confident, I feel like in, in paying a lot of attention to not only what I'm reading and what I want to read, but why I'm choosing to pick it up, what I like about it, um, why it speaks to me and why it might not to other readers. And then listening to other readers talk about what works for them, what doesn't, their struggles, their challenges, their, um, their highlights. I feel like I not only get to read the books, but I get to think about the reading in a more insightful way than I did 10 years ago. And as a giant nerd who loves to know what's going on behind the scenes and of Mm -hmm. of my own awareness, but also in the publishing industry and in other readers' minds, that's really deepened and broadened the reading experience for me. And I'm really grateful for that. And I feel like just because I'm constantly paying attention to what is happening out there in the book world, I one, have to resist being constantly overwhelmed by knowing that I'm just not going to get to everything. And that is my reality. And that Mm -hmm. has to be okay. But also, I've discovered and hear about so many books that don't sound like the kind of thing that I typically read, you know, outside my typical genre, outside my typical style. But I've learned as I've read books like that, that have really surprised me that I've loved over the years, that it can be rewarding to take a chance on something off my beaten path. And I'm much more willing to do that these days. And I think my reading life is better for it. What is a recent book that you've read that surprised you? Oh, The River by Peter Heller. It's kind of wanted to read that one. Uh, The marketing is all aimed at men. It's a total dude book. Not saying that everyone can't read (laughs) everything, but it does tell you something about a book when it is aimed squarely at a specific audience. And I am not getting targeted with Facebook ads for, I mean, I'm not getting targeted with any Facebook ads. I'm not on there, but the internet is not hunting me down to try to make me read this book because I'm not the one they're seeking for and the algorithms, but oh, I'd loved it so much. So it's action adventure, but also such lyrical writing. And it's supposed to be about a peaceful canoeing trip that goes horribly awry. Yet it 
also reads like psychological suspense. And it was, it caught me from the opening line. Um, it combined disparate elements that I wasn't expecting to find in one book. I always love it when that happens. And the style was so gorgeous. And I cared so much about these two, like 20 year old college kids on the river and what would happen to them. It's so good. Best book I've read this year so far. Wow. That's huge praise. Gosh, that reminds me of this other book that I read that was also about two two brothers. See, right there. Do I care about a book with its two young brothers coming to terms? I don't know what I do. <laughs> but I take a chance on it after you told me about it. I hope. So on a scale of one to ten, how stressful is it? The book? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. On a scale of what see, that's difficult to answer because my brain automatically will assess a different grade for that being in the genre it is, as I would compared to say like a Riley Sager novel, you know? And I don't read Stephen King. I mean, except for his non-horror books, because I don't have that tolerance for the tens. Um, So it seems like it's pretty It's pretty intense. I call it like a, I mean, my level of concern, like 9.8, but like actually how fast my heart is beating, probably like seven. Mm, okay. That's helpful. Oh, but I was so worried. I'd be reading. <laughs> and I told my husband, this book is so good because he happened to be around. If my kids had been around, I would have been like, this book is so good. If I'd been at a coffee shop, I probably would have been like, hello, stranger. <laughs> I just need you to know I am go going through something right now. <laughs> and I'm an introvert. So that's saying a lot. Uh, but I do remember looking up for my book and going, I am so worried about these boys, these fictional boys. Oh, yeah. <sighs> that sounds like it's really good when you get invested like that. I love and it. And it's quick too. It's 250 pages. Ooh. And the the book itself is small. I mean, I'm thinking this thing can't be more than 70,000 words, maybe only 60,000, which is 10 or 20,000 shorter than your typical short novel. And so it goes really quick. Mm, okay. Nicole, we may have to, we have to read this one. Um, do you ever DNF books? Yes. Yes. Emphatically. Yes. All the time. And how, what's sort of the minimum amount of time you'll give it before you'll decide to put it aside? Oh, like three pages. But what I have to say is that uh, I read different books at different times for different reasons. And the reason I picked up the book is a huge factor in how quickly I will DNF it. So, I mean, I'm 200 pages into this mystery that the black ascot and I was reading that for my own sake, my own personal reasons. I'm not beholden to anyone. I don't have any professional obligations surrounding it. I am a reader. But when I was vetting books for this year's summer reading guide, I'm looking for books published within a specific time frame that have a specific uh, tone. While I do choose a broad variety of books. I try not to choose anything that will only appeal to a sliver of um, what I know to be my readership. So um, there, there are a lot of like family literary sagas in this year's guide. So we definitely have some trigger warnings, but nothing that's just going to hammer people with really difficult, sensitive themes that's going to require lots of caveats that I don't want to devote a ton of space to in the summer reading guide. If a book needs a lot of explanation before you pick it up, it's not going to be in the guide. And sometimes it's very clear on page three, like, oh, this is going someplace which indicates it's not the kind of book I'm looking for for this project. And just because that's so time sensitive, I go through those really quickly. I may, I may read it and say, as a reader, I really want to know what happens yet, next. But 
for the reasons I'm looking to read right now, this needs to go off to the side. Maybe I'll pick it up later. Maybe I won't. That depends. But like I freely set books down if they're not for the purpose that I need them for right then. That's part of the balance I think that you have to find, especially as a blogger or anyone who's, if you're writing about something that you want to present to an audience, something that you know you'll like, but won't be appealing for a specific reason. Like we talk a lot about on this show, Mm -hmm. vacation reads and what we want to read on vacation. And we tend to, for vacation reads, we want it to be engrossing and that you can't put it down, that it's easy that in the middle of a bunch of distractions, you're still going to be invested and involved in this book, or it's easy to get back into. But there are certain books that are really good. Like I think of the Shalba Ray book, Rail book that I uh, think about with the Indian women and there's like trafficking. And like, I wouldn't recommend that for a beach read or a vacation read because I read that when I was on vacation. It was completely disconcerting to look up from one world and be in some, some place that is completely different. And I felt like I would have experienced that book differently, I guess, in my regular life as opposed to on a Right, beach right. Because so. in books as in life, timing is everything. And I think it's important to, I think some readers feel like they need permission to set a book down because otherwise they just feel like they failed. They feel like they didn't get it. They feel like they're not smart enough. They feel like they're not good enough. And I just want to say it is okay to not read a book that isn't for you. But especially I think people get a lot of freedom from hearing that it's okay to say, this might be for me, but it's not for me right now. And that's fine. Right. One of the things Nicole and I have talked about, and we may even devote a whole show to it, although I think it'll be a one-sided show, is this notion of book guilt. I think that as readers, we do feel guilt. And like you're saying, you feel guilty because you started in and it's not clicking. Or you feel guilty because it's a book you feel like you should read, but you don't want to. Or it's a book by an author you've liked in the past and you don't particularly like this one. Or you know, especially if you're... Like us, you know, we get books from publishers or we know authors. You feel guilty because maybe you know someone personally and they've written a book and you don't love the book they've written. And so there's a lot of elements to that. I think I feel more guilt than Nicole. I admire Nicole. Nicole can kind of move on from stuff and just not feel bad, whereas I feel like, oh, I failed. That, That sense that you just said, like, why didn't this work for me right now? Do you, how do you deal with the, the notion of book guilt? Well, I feel like we need a little exposition on Brene Brown here, the difference between guilt and shame. Um, If the guilt is telling you something, like I told, I don't know, I told my friend, I will read, here, I'm just looking around for a title. I will read Pride and Prejudice, which I mean, come on, I've read it 20 times, but I will read Pride and Prejudice because I told you I would, because it's important to me that we talk about it together. If you feel guilty because you told your friend that a year and a half ago and you still haven't done it, well, that guilt is telling you something. So you either need to read the book or reassess that whole conversation you had. But feeling bad because you feel like you should be a certain kind of reader or you should do something where those expectations are coming from other people and not ones that you've really chosen for yourself. They've just kind of, they're just kind of there and you've never really thought about why, but you think you're not smart enough, not good enough, not sophisticated enough. No, readers don't need that. Yeah. That's too short. Yeah. And I feel like that's, I feel like that's everything. I also feel like there is just, there is a certain level of, I think with any hobby or with any 
whatever it is that you have, you can, you find it around art or you find it around journalism, that there is a right and a wrong way to do things. And I don't know, sort of like professional values or marketing, like what people want you, what works best for them as opposed to what works best for you. And I think I've definitely been guilty of having guilt for all of those reasons, (laughs) guilty of guilt (laughs) for all of the reasons that, that Gail has mentioned. But You know, I just got to a place where, and I feel like it's, it's a place that you get to and you get to it around all things that who are you living? You know, you start asking your questions. Who are you living your life for? Why am I doing this? Or wanting things to be enjoyable. And I know as a blogger for a while, reading was not enjoyable. It had gotten to a point where it was a chore. And so I just went the opposite way. Like I'm very clear on if I get sent anything, you it. It is just to determine whether it's it's something that I want to read in the future and what other whatever means I get it, or I'm previewing it for certain reasons for the podcast, but not that it is I'm going to read or endorse or do anything around these this book because reading has to be mine. I have to be able to put down something that's not catching my attention. So and that had to get be more important for me and I had to get comfortable around what that might mean for other people, because other people will have you doing a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't benefit you. That's such a smart way to approach it. So what's your best piece of advice for how to read more books? People ask me that all the time. Have a good book ready and waiting. And if you have it on your person, so much the better. I find that people read when they have a book, preferably a book that they are actively in the middle of, that they are excited about reading. And they're not scared to finish it if they've got another one on deck. So have good books ready. And I mean, if you always have my my mantra is that I never leave home without a book and a snack. So (laughs) if you have it on your person, you can read. Yeah, always have it nearby. That's really. I think my advice is just like pick good books. That's how. I mean, if if you're if you're not inspired to read, it's because you're not reading the right books. And go with whatever it is that you're feeling at the time. Like I go through periods. I mean, they're rare now. I feel like they're rarer, but I would go through these periods. I feel like one month every summer, I'd just read romances and I would, you know, romances are tricky for me because I'm, I don't like, I have certain standards for them. I have certain time periods. I want to read certain things I want to read about. So I'll just go through a bunch until I find like four or five that look really good to me and then just read them. And yeah, to just be in whatever space that you're in. So if we hit us, you know, if we hit July and all I'm talking about is romances because I had, I had that moment or sometimes you just, you just want historical fiction or sometimes you go on a nonfiction kick or you go down the rabbit hole and you want to read about books that were mentioned in the book. (laughs) This is all sounding very familiar. (laughs) So Anne, what inspired you to write your book? Oh, that's a good question. I like to write about the things I'm interested in, the things I'm trying to figure out. And also, I feel that continually, I am experiencing the adventures of missing the obvious and uh, learning from the school of hard knocks. So if I can write in a way that is helpful to other readers that helps them take the shortcuts so they don't have to do it the hard way, that feels like a project worth taking on to me. All right, we're going to ask you some kind of short answer questions now. Ooh, so fun. yeah, so we can get through these kind of quickly. So book to TV adaptations. Nick Cole and I talk about those a lot on the show. Do you like them or hate them? 
I mean, I love them when they're done well, and I hate them when they've ruined my characters for me. Is there one that I can have it both ways? Yeah. Right? Is there one that stands out to you that you really like? Oh, Clueless. Clueless is one of my favorites. Um, <laughs> nice. The it's Alicia Silverstone does Emma, yep. and it is fantastic. Yep. You're talking to two huge Austin fans here, so we're we'll agree with you on probably anything you say about Jane Austen. <laughs> um, well, and I love it because it is an adaptation. Like it's not supposed to be a faithful 100%. Let's just take the book and put it on the screen. I mean, it's set in LA in the 90s, but it's that's what I love about mm-hmm. it because it lets you enjoy the story and see themes that are still applying today, but also appreciate instead of be horrified by the creative license that they took mm-hmm. with updating it 200 years. I feel like stuff like that. I love that it gets you interested because I, I think a well done adaptation gets you interested in the source material. Yes. And that's always fun. You know, if you felt like Emma was inaccessible before or you thought you might not like it or you don't know what it's really about when you see those themes or whatever. And it makes it easy, you know, it makes it easier to approach the original. Mm-hmm. Speaking of um, Austin adaptations, um, we'll give you two here that Nicole and I have both read. And we want to know what you thought of them. One is um, Mary B and one is eligible. Oh, I know Catherine and she's lovely, but I haven't read Mary B yet. Okay. Uh, eligible, man, you're going straight for the controversial one. <laughs> eligible. I thought it was fun. <laughs> Because so much creative license, she she wasn't trying to do a strictly slotted "What if Pride and Prejudice happened today?" Because you just can't do that. Yeah. But I thought I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, I I thought you might have the newer ones in mind. Like I did love Aisha at last coming out in the U.S. in June, but it's been out in Canada for a year. And oh, there's just a whole spate of Austin oh, unmarriageable happening right now. Unmarriageable, Sonali Dev had a women's fiction title, Pride, Prejudice, and Other Flavors. There's a Lucy Parker romance that's called The Austin Playbook that has heavy Jane Austen themes. It's just Did you read the Jane Austen project? I really love yes, that one. I did. The 20, time travel one? Twenty sixteen, maybe. I did. It was in the summer reading guide yeah. that year. I thought that was fun. Mm, so good. I'll be so intrigued yeah, to fun. know what you think of Mary B. Because well, Nicole and I have talked about this forever on the show, but she definitely sort of, you know, it picks up basically where Pride and Prejudice ends and then goes in some directions that we didn't expect. And I'd so be curious to know what you <laughs> thought of that. I know enough about the story to know it would be amazing book club fodder. Yes. I think that, you know, and I think that Mary B, I mean, if you're a purist, you're just going to hate that book because I think the fun thing about it is that it is set has that tone. You're back in that time period and the language has that tone in a sense. The characters are completely, characters are completely different. It's feminism back then that just doesn't work. So there's a lot about it that does and doesn't work. I think if you're willing to just put aside whatever it is that you're feeling and and go with it, if you're looking more for a traditional adaptation that's going to rouse all those feelings. (laughs) Well, Nicole, you... And I don't think that, and I don't think that people will even, you know, like if you really like Pride and Prejudice, and I had to get to that point because I was such a Pride and Prejudice, you know, like oh, Darcy would never do this or whatever. So I feel like I've matured over the years of reading Pride and Prejudice adaptations and retellings because once upon a time, I would have hated this book. But I guess it was just so divorced from Pride and Prejudice that it was almost just easy enough to mm-hmm. see it as another book yeah. with you know, 
Mary and Darcy are the names. And because so it you was weren't just so like different. clutching your pearls and reaching for your smelling salts. <laughs> no, people read unmarriageable and they're just like, but it was just like proud and prejudice, but in Pakistan, I was like, <laughs> the beauty of it. <laughs> All right. What is um, one book that you're most looking forward to this summer? Ooh, okay. See, this is tricky because I've read them all. I mean, no, I wish, I wish that was true. (laughs) The books that I'm really looking forward for readers to read that are in the summer reading guide that are already out. Let me think. I'm really excited about, I want to have conversations about Ask Again, Yes. Yes, me too. About Resistance Women, about the new Blake Crouch novel, What a Brain Bender. I need to talk to somebody about that. Recursion. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Recursion? Mm-hmm. Seriously? I yeah. mean, just thinking about reading that book, it makes my head hurt. Um, not that it wasn't well done, but... Did you like Dark Matter? I did, but I didn't love it. I felt like there were a lot of people... Yeah, I didn't love said, it Like either. what we said earlier, I never thought I would read this, but I picked it up and I, you know, like best of the year. I feel like a lot of people said that. There are some fun ones coming out this summer. Waiting for Tom Hanks is like a mm. rom-commy... It's pegged as a romance, but it's not, I, I think it's women's fiction. But anyhow, it's coming out this summer. Every Drake Starts Over from Linda Holmes, a pop culture happy hour. Time After Time is a really fun, really, I don't I don't want to give any spoilers because um, it would be so easy to summarize that very quickly. But I, part of the beauty is not knowing what's going to happen, but oh, it messes with Ooh, I have that fun. on my shelf. Um, Grand Central Terminal, Manhattan Henge, problematic love story. It's a lot of fun. But I think figuring out the mystery of what's happening is such a fun aspect of the story. And it's in all the reviews. Oh, I just want to go through with my redactor pen and strip that off the internet. It's frustrating. See, I'm so sensitive. Like, I don't read a lot of reviews. And I have blogs that I follow and like. But I usually check in on them after I've read. You know, like, I don't read them regularly because I can't Mm -hmm. spoil myself. You know, like, certain things I feel like that people don't think of as spoilers or spoilers. And I hate when they tell you something that happens 150 pages into the book, because I feel like you're waiting for it and it's shaping your reading experience. So like, I just want the barest amount of, you know, tell me where it's set. Tell me a little bit. Well, and then that's I hear it. You. Cause I want to discover it, you know, want to or discover if they tell you there's some myself. sort of a narrative twist, like then you're just, well, I hate narrative <laughs> twists. I really, really hate when people tell you that it's an unreliable narrator because so then yeah, you're on your guard. Yeah. You're watching for it. You're trying to figure out how they're unreliable. And part of the fun of unreliable narrators is usually it's, oh, you're unreliable. And what, you know, at what point that occurs yeah. to you is always so interesting. All right. So. Uh, what is a book that everyone else has read, but you have not read? Hmm. Oh, this feels like kind of a lame answer, but Eat, Pray, Love? Me neither. I never read that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, I'm already yeah. wrong. No, well, I know. I think I think that most people have. Yeah. Um, what is an author that you've read all of his or her books? Ooh, uh, Louise Penny, Maggie O'Farrell. Ooh, Ooh uh, Wendell Berry. Okay. Did you say one? <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> I didn't so feel Louis, representative. That's okay. Uh-uh. That's okay. Louise Penny, how many books does she have? I mean, I've, I want it. I feel like I have the first of her books. I feel like that'll be a good mystery series That's for me to question, get into. Because they're not numbered on the side. It's in the neighborhood of 13. She, plus, or, plus or minus. Okay. 
All right. That's not uh, too bad. What is a book that you did not like that everyone else did like? Oh, that's a difficult question to answer. Because, you know, it's hard to go on the record is not like, well, sometimes it can be hard to go on the record as not liking a book. And then sometimes I feel like if it seems that everyone else liked a book, then that perception is probably not actually correct. All right. Well, we can, what about we you can all? skip that question. Uh, I, I had a, I didn't write it down, but I had one on the tip of my tongue and now I don't know what it is. Oh, you know what? Here we go. Here we go. Um, so I do feel like a terrible person and it's all relative, you know, but I I read The Nightingale. I thought The Nightingale was fine, but I read it in the middle of a whole ton of World War II historical fiction, and I didn't understand why that one is the one mm. that went bananas. That's why. That's how we feel about all the light. Oh, see, I really see. liked all the light. <laughs> that's how I feel about that. Which was one of the books that, that yeah. um, I read either right before or right after. I mean, I think we Which, both liked it. I think we just were kind of like, why is this such a juggernaut? We, yeah, we did. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I liked it. I thought, it, you know, it was one of those books I'm just like, it was fine, which sort of to me is like a curse word. I never want to hear that about a book someone's recommending to me, but it was, it was like, it was interesting. It was good. It was, it was okay, but it was not like, I just didn't feel that. And maybe once you like, and I think that you're alluding to once people have already told you like, oh, this is the best, this is the this, sort of if your feelings don't live up to that, you know, it's like, okay, this book was, it was good. It was fine. Yeah, sure. You can read it. But it was not like, oh my gosh, you have got to read this book. Like I didn't get those feelings. I really loved Aftermath by Ridian Brooke. You know, now there's a movie about it, but I feel like no one really loved that one mm -hmm. as quite as mm -hmm. much when it came out. Oh. I hear you. There's that, there's that expectation of being told this book is going to knock your socks off. And then you read it and you're like, this one? And I'm so glad that we had different opinions on those two novels because it just goes to show that different people like different things. Yeah. And we will read more if we can find good books and have them ready to read. But I think it helps readers to know that learning what you personally love. Uh, it's a journey and you learn it by reading and by thinking about why it worked for you or why it didn't and talking about it with other readers and listening to other readers discuss them on podcasts. <laughs> and it it is a process and it's a delightful process, but it's a process. Yeah. And I think too, like what format you read it in, like yeah. I did all the light on audio and I think that that enhanced the book for me because there's so much ten narrative tension in that book. And the narrator did a great job of conveying that. I mean, talk about heart racing book. Like that book was so stressful. And that scene where she's in that room in the dark and they are coming to find her and she's, you know, she can't see them. And, oh, like I just, I think I was like walking my dog while I read that and while well, I listened to it. And, um, and I heard you talking on a show recently about. When you're when you're in a really good audiobook, your dog gets like super long walks because you just don't want to go <laughs> home. Or that feeling yep. of like, you know, the car, I'm sitting in front of my house. My husband's like, what are you doing in the car all that time? I'm like, oh, I had to finish the chapter on audio. <laughs> so that book, like I, my dog was well exercised because I just was like, what's going to happen? Super stressful. That is high praise. Yeah. I also think that you get to a point in your life where like, I will start to read a book and just know 
I'll probably really like this book, but not right now. And what you can put aside and come back to, like, there's certain novels that are sort of long and complicated or, and you just know that you just, you want something fast, like you want a fast paced mystery. So yeah, like, and like you're saying, just really figuring out your mood and knowing what you'll like when and, and already having and those books. I think up. like, t- like you said, timing is everything. It's also important. What did you just read? Cause if you've just read something super heavy, you might want something right. light and vice versa. And then also like Nicole, remember earlier this year I was reading, I picked up that book, the sun does shine which I was so interested in reading, but it was, you know, opened with all about this guy on death row who's trying to prove his innocence. And it was, mm-hmm. I just had a lot of like stressful, difficult things going on in my life. And I said, this, this is just not the book right now. Like at some point I will go back to the library and get it back out. But, but as much as I want to read this, it's, it's not helping my mental state right now. <laughs> right. Or two years ago, I went through the most bizarre streak where every time I got on an airplane, and pulled out my Kindle that I, you know, take with me to travel. Not my favorite way to read, but I travel with it because that's what it's good for. Um, I like four times in a row on four different flights, I'd pull out a new book and it would have a plane crash oh. in the first 20 pages. And I'd be like, are, are you kidding me <laughs> R- again? So yeah, yeah. right, right, right. You Not wait till now. you're safely on the ground <laughs> right, to write that book. Right. So if we handed you 25 bucks and pushed you into your favorite bookstore, what would you buy right now? Oh, whatever looked good on the certain staff pick shelf. <laughs> Actually, what I really need in my life right now is the new final book in the Hamster Saurus Rex series for my third grader. <laughs> um, and I still haven't bought the new Barefoot Contessa. I mean, it's not even new anymore, but the new Barefoot Contessa cookbook. I think I really need that in my life. But what I love to do is wander into the bookstore and pick up something that looks good that's recommended by a bookseller or a friend that I love. Nice. All right, so we're going to shift gears now, and um, we're going to just focus quickly on historical fiction. That'll be our theme of this episode, and we're going to just each offer up a couple of suggestions for people who like historical fiction. They can be backlist, and they can be current, whatever pops to mind. So we'll each just mention a title or two and give a quick description of what it's about and where it's set. We know that there's a lot of fans of historical fiction out there who might not have heard of all of these. Yes. And you know, what's so interesting, what was surprising for me to discover is that publishers, reading professionals talk about a certain category of readers called avid readers. And they're readers like you and me and many of your listeners who read way more books than the national average, who buy way more books than the national average. And two genres they really love are uh, mysteries that go in series and historical fiction. And Mm -hmm. I thought that was so interesting. So it's not surprising that you know a lot of historical fiction fans. Yes. Good. All right. Well, let's let's give them mm-hmm. some fodder for the summer. So, right. Anne, you want to kick us off with a historical fiction read that you recommend? Yes, I do. But which one to pick? Okay. I know. Dun, dun, I know. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. So, I recently read my first, well, I recently finished my first Lisa C. novel. This one came out in March. It's called The Island of Sea Women. And what I liked about this, have you read it? Ooh. I haven't read that one, but I've read most of Lisa C's novels. She's so good. I've begun a few Lisa C novels. And this was the first one I finished. I don't know what that means. I thought this was great. So I like it because it's got several different elements. It's a tale of female friendship over the years, over like 80 years. It spans a long time. It has storylines that go back and forth in time. So there's a little bit of a mystery. Like we know where the story ends, but how did we get there? 
I am here for a plot line like that. It's set against the backdrop of history and examines very real events in, this is actually her first novel set in Korea. So she's talking about a dramatic and tragic historical events that I'm rushing to Google because I did not know anything about them. But the setting is also incredible and very real. This is set on a South Korean island. It's called Jeju. And on this island, women are the breadwinners. And that was actually the uh, the bit of information that I think Lisa C. said she read in a waiting room somewhere. She read about this society where the women make their families' livings by free diving into the frigid waters of the Pacific Ocean and they catch seafood and it gets sold. And that's how they feed and clothe their kids and pay for their shelter while the husbands are off um, taking care of the babies. So this is about two girls who become fast friends as seven-year-olds. But of course, life throws them a lot of... um punches, both expected and not expected. And there are rocky times, but it goes over 80 years. So female drama, 80 years, very, very fascinating historical setting that taught me things I didn't know, but definitely wanted to learn more about. That's my favorite kind of historical novel. I think that's how I really got into Lisa C. I believe the first novel of hers I might've read is Snowflower Mm -hmm. and the Secret Fan, which was um, the first time I was introduced to the hungry ghost phenomenon, I think that was the one that she talks a lot about hungry ghosts. It's about this marriage that goes awry or, if, or if I'm thinking about another of her books, but she was my first, I think author that I really started branching out with cultures that were not Western cultures. So just being exposed to elements that I totally wasn't familiar with. So I mean, you mentioned this book. It sounds great. I think I probably haven't read as much Lisa C is that she takes some time with her books, which I think is good. And then like, I'm so caught up in reading other things, but I have to have to get back to her because it sounds really good. One of my go-to historical fiction recommendations is City of Thieves by David Benioff. So this is Backlist. It came out uh, quite a while ago, but it is about... Um, St. Petersburg during the siege or Leningrad during the siege. And it is this tale of two guys who kind of prisoners, but they are asked by their, or maybe I can't remember if they're prisoners or they're in the army, but they're asked by their commanding person to go and track down two eggs so that a cake can be made for the daughter of this person requesting this for her wedding. And of course, this is during a time of great deprivation and no, there are no eggs to be found and it's an impossible task, but they set off to do it. And it is just such a beautifully written book. First of all, it's so interesting because I just find the siege of Leningrad so fascinating, but it's a buddy story. It is um, sad and also funny and it's just beautifully written. And I loved it. I'm shocked that this has not been made into a movie because it would be a great movie. Um, David Benioff is, was he the producer, director? I don't know what he is. Something I don't watch Game of Thrones, but he's big on Game of Thrones. So he's clearly somebody who knows a lot about storytelling, about keeping people's interest. And I just thought this was a fantastic book. Did either of you guys read City of Thieves? No, I haven't yet. But a podcast guest on What Should I Read Next has raved about it. and started her story with the two eggs, which is so fascinating. What a great way in. 
Yeah, that is. I was just, I know Gail has talked about this book a few times and I didn't realize it was just like that. Wow. That's super yeah, specific. It's very specific. Well, they, you know, they needed a premise. You needed a goal for these guys that it's going to be very difficult for them to do. No, I think that's, yeah, I think that's good. Nicole. Two men set off in search of an egg. Okay. So I am reading right now the confessions of Fanny, Franny Langton by Sarah Collins. And it is so good. It is historical fiction set in both Jamaica and England from the time period about 1812 to 1826. So this book is about Franny Langton. She is on trial for the murder of her employer. She's been, she was originally a slave in Jamaica and, you know, her owner there, she had a very complex relationship with. And he had gotten involved in scientific experimentation that he was having her help with. And, you know, through events, they end up in England and he leaves her with someone who is, who acted as a mentor or partner on this publishing project. And she's left there kind of as a, a bribe or maybe a tribute, like he's hopeful of certain things and he leaves her there to sweeten the pot. So she works for them. She starts off as like a scullery maid, but she develops a relationship with the mistress of the house. And she's eventually accused of murdering both him and his wife. So as the novel begins, she is on trial and she is writing an account of her life to her lawyer who is asking her for any kind of information that might help him put her story into context and to save her life. It took me... I think a chapter or two to really get into it because the voice is really different, but that's what makes this book really special. Just the two different lifestyles that she's lived and her approach to life. I don't know. She's just like one of these characters that you love to get to know and the things that she's been through and have experienced and how they shape her life. She's just got such an interesting voice. And uh, that's out this month. I have that one sitting on the shelf. That sounds interesting. I do have it on, you the, have shelf. It on the shelf, Gail. Um, yeah, Emma Donahue really loved it, and I really love Emma Donahue. And this is one of those blurbs that's actually. <laughs> Sometimes people blurb things, and you're like, "Really?" That's yeah. a whole nother conversation. That would be <laughs> yes, really fun to have. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Maybe we can each quickly do one more, so that we can squeeze in three more books. And you want to do one quickly? I got it. Okay, so the year that I didn't love. The Nightingale was also the year I read Everyone Brave is Forgiven by Chris Cleave. So this is also about World War II. It's set in London during the Blitz, but instead of this being earnest and sweeping and heartfelt, and it probably was at least the latter two things, but oh, this is about four friends during the war and the dialogue is just witty and snappy and crackling and it moves. It has such movement. And Cleve said he wanted to write a book that conveyed the experience of war, but he wanted to make you actually experience that as a reader, which is kind of brutal sometimes because in war, things happen that you are not expecting when you are not expecting them. And as a reader, that's really hard, but wow, it was such a powerful reading experience, but also because he was just so darn funny. Um, it was fun. A war book that was both devastating and fun to read. I loved it. That sounds like a good description of City of Thieves. Like it's a war book, but it's fun to read. Serious issues, but so darn witty. Yes. 
Okay, so my next one is The Two-Family House by Linda Cohen-Loydman. This book takes place in the 40s, and it's about uh, a two-family house. So you've got an upstairs and a downstairs, and two brothers are living in the two residences. And it's all about how their lives intertwine, um, how their wives get along, their kids, how they're different from each other. You know, there's tragedies, there's joys. It's a a typical family drama, but I really liked her sense of place. I liked that it really transported you to this neighborhood and these Jewish families living in New York. And um, historical fiction is Linda's, uh, definitely her her sweet spot. She also this year wrote The Wartime Sisters, which also took place during World War II. But I think between the two, I like the two-family house better because I really loved the interplay and the dynamics among all the family members. So that is my second historical fiction pick. Okay. So I've talked about this before. It's out now. It's called The Red Daughter by John Burnham Schwartz. So this is a novel. It's set during the Cold War. Stalin has died and his daughter has, she's been living in Russia and raising her two children, but she goes on vacation. I believe she goes to Switzerland and she has the opportunity to come to the United States where the United States wants to publish her memoirs. I mean, I think that they were concerned about having her in the country, but when it becomes clear that her memoir is going to be published, they arrange for her to come over. So it's about her complicated relationship with the young lawyer who goes to meet her and brings her over and serves as her... I guess, touchstone while she's in the United States. And she is a very complicated woman. Like I said, she had a son who might have been in his early teens and she had a young daughter when she left and she isn't able, well, she doesn't go back to see them and she doesn't, she hasn't prepared them for the fact that she's left. So it's all about the life that she's built, her relationship with her family and the relationship that she has with this lawyer. And it is so good. Like I don't normally think of myself as someone who's particularly interested in Russian history. You know, it's like, it's not my go-to. I've loved a gentleman in Moscow, but I think that was, that was definitely Amor Tolls who led me to reading about that. But this book is, is fabulous. So. All right. Well, we will link to all of the books we've mentioned. There have been many. We'll link to them in our show notes. And we will also link to um, Anne's podcast and her blog and her books so that you know how to find her. I'd like to thank our readerly listeners, as always, for listening to the show. Please share it. Please tell your friends about it. Please rate and review it. And most importantly, let us know what books you are excited about and what you're reading so that we can um, talk to you about books and extend the conversation past the podcast. So, Anne, thank you so, so much for coming on. This was great. Really love talking to you. It was you. my pleasure. Yeah. So thank you for you've having me. Got a wealth of, of information and wisdom about reading, and it's just great to hear your perspective. So thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Until next time, happy reading. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Readerly Report. You can find all of our shows on iTunes or at thereaderlyreport.com. Please join our Facebook group, Readerly Report Readers, where you can talk to other listeners about their reading life. You can also find Nicole at NicoleBonia.com and me, Gail, at EverydayIWriteTheBookBlog.com. Finally, we'd love it if you left us a review on iTunes and told your book-loving friends about us. Thanks.